Hello, everybody, and welcome back to... We've got mail. We do. We do. We got mail. Uh, this is the podcast where we answer your letters. You control the conversation right here at the Critically Acclaimed Network. My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibs. You're, you're a what? I'm a critic. Critic. Okay. Yeah, I said a little fast. Crick. Yeah. You're, you're a crick, like a little river? Yes. My name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a crick. Yes. Uh, and I write for Slash Film. And, uh, yeah, we answer your letters on this podcast. You get to control the conversation. You tell us what to do. And uh, <laughs> it's very, very easy. You just send us an email. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Dante, what are we doing over there? Dante is a cat. And, Dante, you you leave a you left a toy out for the cats. It's yeah. like a, a little scratching post. Yeah, it hangs but it's from a, a doorknob. Uh, but it's against a door, so whenever they play with it, it, it makes a terrible racket. Yeah, well, thanks, buddy. Good timing. Uh Dante loves you. Dante is a cat. Uh, so but anyway, what's, what's our email address? Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We also have a P.O. Box. Whitney, what is our yes. P.O. Box? Uh, yeah, you sent us a physical letter to the Critically Acclaimed Network, P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. And we do always start with whatever is in our P.O. Box, and we do have something today. We I do. think it might have been in there for a little bit, because we, we had to miss a couple episodes of We've Got Mail for Personal yeah. Stuff that came out, so I apologize if there's been any delay. But it is a it is a big Manila envelope. Yeah, it's a big Manila envelope. I, I ripped Did it you open. Say vanilla. I said Manila. Okay. And uh, I it's it has a large flat letter inside that's taped around a piece of cardboard. Love it. So it's it's a nice uh, mm. solid. You could fan yourself with it. I love it. And, um, and it's a big letter C. It's a letter. It's the large letter C. And w- <laughs> printed within this large letter C is the letter. I love uh, it. Let's that, do it. It's uh, it's from Eric. Hi, Eric. And it says, Dear Bibbs and Whitney, I hope this message finds you well. For some time I've heard you say that a physical letter should be sent to your P.O. box, and it will guarantee it will be right on the air. Uh, this is true. We, yeah. we don't yet receive so many physical letters that we have to like start parsing them out. Yeah. We'll just read them. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, I was unsure if you meant a physical letter, a traditional letter in an envelope, or an actual physical letter. Like you might find on Sesame Street, I chose to err on the side of caution and print my message on this comically large letter C. Okay, you know what? C is for cookie. Yes. Uh, But I I demand more. C is for critically acclaimed, dude. I I know. Okay. Um, my (laughs) My thought experiment for you is, colon... What if Hollywood just stopped making new movies ah. and only made remakes? Oh, jeez. Uh, I'll pause to allow uh, M. Lofitz de Silva to reattach the tops of your heads. Okay, before you <laughs> scoff, please consider. Jordan Peele's Gone with the Wind. Oh, God. Bong Joon-ho takes on The Bicycle Thief. Mm-hmm. Uh, a Chloe Zhao-helmed Thelma and Louise. Uh, Michelle Gondry reimagines UHF. Okay, that would actually be kind of cool. Actually. Yeah, I'm not yeah. gonna lie, that would be fun. And Kevin Smith presents a Midsummer Night's Dream. That oh, would be that, very. He, weird. he could he could do that actually. actually I, he'd I, probably have fun with it. Yeah, with one of Shakespeare's comedies. They get the right cast. Yeah, Jane Silent Bob as Puck. <laughs> it rates itself. <laughs> Your patron Eric Fusco. Um, yeah, gigantic letter C. That's uh, very very cute. Hand that over to me. Uh, here we go. I uh, I I wrote an essay once many years ago. Uh, Proposing, and I know this is not feasible. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, it, it would be kind of overall disastrous for the industry. But as a, a film lover and as a film mm-hmm. viewer, I thought this was a fun idea. No new movies for one year. Yeah, you've mentioned Just, yeah. Uh, no, studios don't get to make any original content. They mm-hmm. only can release their back catalog. Mm-hmm. And it, the idea was let's make the public 
familiar with the classics mm-hmm. by giving them nothing but classics for yeah. one year, and that's what you go to see in theaters. And it would be kind of cool, like you every thing you. I mean, listen. On one hand, we're saying no more new art, which would suck. There's like this whole gap year in which artists weren't like commenting on things, and that would. But we're thinking about this as a thought exercise. Yeah, no one's yeah. actually suggesting we do it. Well, well would these it, sorts it of thought exercises disastrous are, for your jobs and all the rest. Babe. What these thought exercises do is they make you think about like what good might come of that and what ill might come of that. And when you realize that some good might come of that, you think to yourself, well, how can we do that without resorting to anything so extreme? Um, what I like about that idea in the abstract anyway in this sort of fairy tale universe in which um it makes sense is um every single thing playing in every theater would be a banger yeah like there'd be, there'd be no guesswork it's like yeah. every single movie yeah, oh what's playing at the multiplex well it's raiders of the lost ark uh it's uh, uh die hard uh, <laughs> fanny and alexander it's yeah. fanny and alexander we've got uh geez I don't know, the John Carpenter's Halloween, mm-hmm. uh, Ang Lee's Sense and Sensibility. So you got the, the Exorcist and the Godfather double feature in this yeah. one house. Spike yeah. Lee's Malcolm X. Is, but like all of, just imagine just going to see all those options. Mm-hmm. Not just like one repertory theater, just all these options in the theater. And that's for, for a straight year. Yeah. Just no, nothing but that every time you and go to the theater. Before we had like nothing but first-run movies in theaters, which really didn't solidify until about the 70s, um, Studios used to re-release movies in theaters all the time. Oh yeah, but prior to home video, especially. Yeah, yeah. like there would be the occasional screening on television, more if it was not seen as a particularly valuable movie, and he just sort of threw it on TV and no one cared. But yeah, they would. Re- one of the reasons why Gone with the Wind, despicable though it may be, uh, is the highest-grossing film of all time if you adjust for inflation, which I think is still true. Um, Wait, which one? Gone with the Wind. Still. Domestically, yeah. All right. Um, domestically, it made over like two billion dollars if you adjust for inflation. Okay. Just domestic. Um, one of the reasons why it has that number is because they released it more than once. They released yeah. it over and over and over again. That happened with Dracula was lucrative in the 1950s when Bela Lugosi couldn't make, get a job. Mm-hmm. People were still going to see Dracula in theaters. Yeah. yeah. Well, so, I, I know that was the case with. Um, uh, uh, Night of the Living Dead. Sure. Because uh, of that copyright lapse, mm-hmm. just anybody showed Night of the Living Dead. So it, it was huge throughout, like it came yeah. out in 68, but it ran for a decade. Like, yeah. it, was, it was just all over the place. So that should, that sort of thing reminds you that there, there's an audience for seeing movies over and over again. Now, as for your prompt, what if we only remade movies? Mm-hmm. Here's the thing about that. Now, you listed a bunch of like really prominent, high profile, classic movies. That they could remake over and over again. There's also a lot of junk. There's a lot of movies that, like, seriously, we think about the classics that you might want to remake, and some they might seem like blasphemy, they might seem like a good idea. You think of all the hit films you could remake, but now imagine all of the B movies mm. that you could make now that would actually, like, potentially you could do even better. Yeah. Like the really low budget, like noir stuff. Like what if there was like a whole demand for that now and you could do, Mm. and all these stories, some of them people aren't that familiar with. It would be like getting a new movie for a lot of people. Think about all like uh, uh, the, the fantasy films that sadly are not as well known today. I mean, like you're telling me you're going to remake the Valley of Guanji today. (laughs) Great. I'm down. If you've never seen the Valley of Guanji, it's about a bunch of cowboys who find a secret Valley full of dinosaurs, like awesome stop motion, Mm. like Ray Harryhausen dinosaurs. And they, they, they rustle them. (laughs) 
They're like lasso and Allosaurus and shit. Well, here, That's an awesome movie. I want to see that with a big budget. Let's do it. Well, the, the problem with a lot of those uh, like old B movies is their charm comes from their budget. Uh, well, it's it's filmmakers working with limited resources trying to be as creative as possible to mm-hmm. show what they could. Yeah. With unlimited resources, we've found, yeah. a lot of the creativity isn't there anymore. Granted, but you don't necessarily have to put unlimited resources. And also, just because the charm is in their... uh, uh, I don't want to say lack of ambition, Mm. but the charm is in the lack of resources. Mm. That doesn't mean that putting resources behind it isn't a good idea. The charm of the... One of the biggest charms of the the 1930s Flesh Gordon serials is Mm. how low-budget, and especially by today's standards, and cheap it is. When George Lucas did Star Wars, did anyone say, oh, I miss when it looked like crap? <laughs> like, no, we were like, oh, that's impressive. You made it look right. really, really cool. So, like, I don't think that needs to necessarily be the case. Although no, in ca- some a- cases it would be fine. It would be fine yeah. to leave it uh, cheap, but, you know. Star Wars is pretty dang slick. What mm-hmm. I like is that a lot of the special effects actually have dated, mm-hmm. at least if you can get the, the uncleaned up version. Yeah, there's still some left over in the there is version a- we have now, but a lot of them have been tidied. I, I was lucky enough to see... Uh, Star Wars prior to the release of the special editions before yeah. they added all the digital effects. There's a scene in Star Wars mm. where uh, they're driving through the desert on like a floating hover car. Yeah, it's the and they have that Vaseline and, smear underneath. And, yeah, and they, it, yeah. they used just a smear, and there were just wheels under there. Yeah. They were just driving a car that had been dressed up. Yeah, and, but to but hide that on camera, they yeah they just literally just smeared it. It's sort of quivering because somebody yeah. they just applied it by hand, and it it looks like total crap. And in mm-hmm. later editions, they you know, cleaned it up, and it just looks like a flying car now. Yeah. But I, I like when you can see those kinds of smears. Mm-hmm. I like the 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 look that somebody handled it. Uh, it and looks, when you look back yeah. at Star, if you look back and see the original Star Wars, you can actually see a lot of the seams. Yeah, you know, a lot of that, uh, you know, the space dogfight stuff is really slick. But mm-hmm. you know, the the ground level effects aren't always the best. Yeah. And and I, I like, think it's I a like personality. when you can see how, yeah, when you, you can see you what racing, was being done. When you do that, you erase the personality over time. Mm-hmm. That's very frustrating. So, you know what? You could very easily, if you really wanted to, um, do nothing but remakes for quite a few years, and a lot of people wouldn't notice, because yeah. you don't have to remake the big stuff, or you don't have to remake the stuff that everyone's super familiar with. Um, so, yeah, it could, be, it could honestly be fun. I got nothing against remakes in theory, like... I, I used to be snooty about it. Uh-huh. No longer. You know, we've had remakes since the silent era, for crying out loud. Um, there's nothing inherently wrong with telling the same story again. We've been doing it for centuries, millennia even. Only question is, are you doing it well? Are you doing it your way? Are you bringing something mm-hmm. of yourself to it that someone didn't bring before? Uh, because if you're not, then there's no point. Yeah. If you're just trying to do what happened before, then there's no point. But if you're trying to like bring it into a new era, add new context, add a new style, uh, then we got something. Mm. Try it. It's just like restaging a Shakespeare play, but like changing the location or mm. or re-editing it or something. It's valid. Yeah. So yeah. Um, it would be uh, one of the suggestions you made was uh, Jordan Peele remaking Gone with the Wind. <sighs> uh, wouldn't that be Kane? That would be. Uh, yeah. I would be very curious how that would turn out. Mm-hmm. That feels like that's going to be a bait and switch yeah, when like, we get into um, the theater. But my idea would to be like try to match people with like completely opposite style material. Well, like, yeah, I guess. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, so. yeah, but 
Okay. Like, um, so, like, you're imagining, like, give me, give me an example here. Uh, let's see. Um, like Winnie, Winnie the Pooh, uh-huh. as directed by Lars von Trier. You okay. know, something, something like that. Um, okay. So, uh, uh, Michael, ha- uh, uh, Michael Haneke's. My neighbor Totoro. <laughs> the na- your neighbor Totoro is just staring at you. Yeah. <laughs> All creepy. Like. Uh, let's see here. Um, uh, Michael Bay's The Little Prince. The, well, th- the problem is I picture a movie in my head already. Okay, maybe not yeah. The Little Prince. Okay, Michael Bay's with something well, like really gentle. It would have to be something really like kind of talky and cerebral. Okay. For something for somebody like Michael Bay. Okay, fine, 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 fine. Like 12, Michael... 12 Angry Men. No, yeah. I think that makes two sense because it's kind of like it's got thrill. Yeah, it's I got guess a little so. Well, that's true. There's there's you some know? tension in that movie. Uh, Michael Bay's When Harry Met Sally. There you go. There you go. Now <laughs> you got a movie. Michael Bay's Before Sunrise. Ooh. Yeah, how, how would he shoot a movie like that? Well, the oh, sunrise would, would be fucking a... awesome. <laughs> the sunrise would be so orange. Solar flares <laughs> <laughs> blowing out the windows. Gotta do something. I think I love you. I think I love you too. Dynamite. You know that scene where they like listen to a record together in a record store. Yeah. And you just all, they put on the headphones. What I've done <laughs> myself. Oh my god. Yeah. Still be awful. <laughs> we should move on. All right. um, Thank that, you for the wonderful letter. That was only our letter. Only, uh, physical letter, so we're going to switch over to, to uh, some emails now. That was very clever. Thank you for that. that Thank made, you. That made my day. That was really fun. Here's one that comes from R. Clay Johnson. Hi, Hi R. Clay. R. Clay. Um, Bibbs and Whitney, I just wanted to send some clarifying information on Doctor Who. Mm. Since I'm a huge fan and the history of the show can get a little confusing, uh, Doctor Who is far too vast. Just yeah. start. Um, yeah, we we we. I like Doctor Who a lot. Um, I'm not an expert in Doctor Who, especially yeah. the earlier seasons, uh, and uh, we we have referenced it a few times. I think, in particularly, uh, in as it corresponded to Star Trek, which I the, believe this letter has something to do. Yeah. With. Um, uh, it is inevitable that comparisons between Star Trek and Doctor Who will happen. They are two of the longest-running, most successful sci-fi shows. Uh, that being said, on all our yesterdays, that's mm-hmm. our Star Trek podcast for our Patreon subscribers. Mm-hmm. Um, Patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. Uh, we're up to the fourth season, Next Generation, so everything up to that point can be unlocked. Yeah, for, for, um, for $10 down, you get like over 150 episodes. Right. Boom. Uh, that, uh, you have understandably gotten a couple of details about Doctor Who wrong. Yeah, uh, uh, that, I'm, I'm, I'm not I'm, shocked. I'm not an expert. Yeah, it's yeah. not a show about Doctor Who, so that's completely understandable. I believe you stated a couple times that you thought Doctor Who started around the same time in Star Trek in 1966. It started on number 23rd, 1963. Okay. Ah, so beat Star Trek by well, a couple in, of years. In the grand scheme of things, that's around when Star Trek started. But it is. <laughs> so, it, is so. it is before. It is before. That's true. That is true. They're, they're, they're both, from the mid '60s. They're both 20th century programs. Yeah. Um, it's easy to remember because it premiered the day after the the Kennedy assassination. That's true. That's why so the pilot when, episode had pretty shit ratings. So when Star Trek premiered in September of 1966, Doctor Who was in its fourth season and on the verge of its first regeneration from William Hartnell to Patrick Troughton. Mm-hmm. I know about Patrick Troughton. I played Patrick Troughton you once. Did some friends of ours uh, made a short film uh, that was The Hunger Games, but everyone in The Hunger Games was was one of the doctors from Doctor Who. Yeah, and, and I, I was the second doctor. They asked you to play, and I was like, I could be a do- I don't look like any of them. <laughs> I, I, I don't look like Patrick Troughton. No, just... you, you, you got away with it. You, you, you're the first one to die. <laughs> I was the first one to die, and yeah. I, I was the only one with a stunt. Yeah. I, go, go on YouTube and look up the Doctor Games. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think Visual Spice is the name of the production yeah. company. And uh, 
Yeah, I, I got strangled by uh, uh, the Tom Baker. Yeah, Tom, Tom he took Baker. off his scarf, whipped yeah. around my neck. <laughs> Pulled me to the ground and strangled me. There's so a lot was... of Tom Baker scarf gags. There's one where he like he ties his scarf around a tree and uses it as like a, a catapult, like a slingshot, as yeah. a slingshot, and starts shooting deli babies into people's mouths and then they choke. Good stuff. <laughs> and ever everybody has like a, a one of their cat, one of that doctor's catchphrases. Yeah. The only one who doesn't is is um, uh, what's his name? Do with the eyebrows, uh, Peter Capaldi, because he had just premiered. Like oh, they, yeah, they, yeah. They didn't, they, we just knew it. He was gonna be a doctor, but we uh, didn't know anything about him. Mm. So they just because he had been coming off of that show, the thick of it, where he mm. swore a lot. They just had him swear a lot. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he swears a lot and dies fast. It's funny. Anyway, but yeah, look that up. I got to die. Yeah, it's fun. Uh, Patrick Trudden. In fact, uh, the first regeneration story in Doctor Who, the Tenth Planet, was also the first Cyberman story. Bibbs, mm. I think the information you found was referring to the revived series from two thousand five. The Cybermen did make their return in the second season of the revival, I, and I've seen the revival. I started yeah. with uh, Christopher Eccles- Eccleston. Yeah, that was uh, um, technically my first Doctor Who was the TV movie with Eric Roberts, oh. and um, yeah, I, I watched that and did, yeah, didn't care for I, it. I, I would have watched more if they'd made more, but they yeah. didn't. But uh, yeah, what, I really caught into it, Eccleston. Um, yeah. But it says, aside from the obvious aesthetics, the biggest difference between the Cybermen and the Borg are their motivation. Mm. While the Borg are driven to perfection through assimilation, the Cybermen's primary motivation is to is survival, by any means. If you're interested, there's actually a very good audio drama of the mm. Cybermen origin story put out by Big Finish. It's called Spare Parts, and because time travel is a fifth Doctor story. And I hope this helps, Arclay Johnson. Thank you, Arclay. Yeah, we were talking about uh, the, uh, some comparisons between the Borg and the Cybermen. Uh, I put it to you that the Cybermen have been portrayed multiple different ways over the years yeah but yeah i'm not saying they're the the same thing but they are still hey you're a person put them in a robot Uh and then let's conquer they're not they're not entirely dissimilar Hmm. but um in any case thank you for correcting us that's how we learn yeah yeah um here's a letter from k Oh, hi, Kay. Oh, hi, Kay. It's been, uh, well. How you been, doing? A while, been a while since we got a letter from Kay. Um, it I says, just realized Kay can't respond. How you doing? Oh, Fine? Okay. Kay can respond. Oh, she, one second. She, she wrote us a letter. Oh, hold on, hold on. I'm going to yeah. give you an opportunity to respond in real time. If All you're right. not Kay, don't answer. Uh, how you doing, Kay? Oh, uh, good. good. That's good to hear. That's yeah. good to hear, assuming you said something positive. If you said something <laughs> negative... Sorry oh. about that, yeah. <laughs> Congratulations or sorry about that, depending on your response. Yeah. Anyway, Kay writes, Hello, Captains. I've been going through Deep Space Nine. This is more Star Trek. Rela- I've got a lot of Star Trek letters this time. Uh, and there's an episode in which Dr. Bashir falls in love with an ensign named Melora, who has a gravity-based disability. Oh, yep. um, she comes from a, a planet where uh, gravity is much lighter than, yeah. like, Earth standard. So when so you're on Earth standard, she's She's, like, super... She feels, yeah. like, super heavy. She has to... And she requires a wheelchair... Mm. And they were able to adjust the gravity in her quarters, so she could, was able to sort of like float around like she was used to. Right. Um, she resents what she perceives as special treatment from the crew. Doctor Bashir tries to pierce through her thorny resistance by explaining that no one has a complete independence in space, and that we all rely on each other in one way or another. Uh, her walls begin to fade, which leads to a really touching sequence where they float together in midair, intertwining into a kiss. I'm not the Doctor's biggest fan, but this episode choked me up a bit, and it's really sweet. Hmm. Uh, I, I, I feel like Dr. Bashir got better uh, as the, the show passed. Dr. Bashir was allowed to evolve more than a lot yeah. of other characters. Like, Quark mm. was on a journey 
But most of the characters, like Odo is basically Odo at the beginning and at the end of the yeah, show. Yeah. Dr. Bashir started off as really naive and mm-hmm. pretty cocksure. And he learned humility he and quick, he became yeah. a better person and a better doctor. And Stopped one, flirting with Dax all the time. Yeah, like, he became like, and one assumes a better lover. Like everything about him seemed to improve over time. Especially as he got to become best friends with O'Brien. Yeah, they're it. funny together. <laughs> Remember the time uh, they remember the time Quark was out of town, but he left their dartboard in like Quark's bar, in his bar. So they, they tried were trying to break, to break in. in yeah. Like Odo was like, "What are you doing? They've got our dartboard. <laughs> <laughs> just, just replicate one, you dorks." Anyway, uh, it says uh, Bibbs, You are often saying how Star Trek is such a malleable property for telling different kinds of stories, mm. whether it's political intrigue or philosophy or space adventures, etc. In honor of Valentine's Day, I was wondering if you could both highlight some of your favorite Star Trek romances. Huh. There are many awkward ones. It is Roddenberry after all. <laughs> <laughs> Roddenberry's view on sex was Roddenberry wants sex uh, <laughs> but I suspect there's more enchanting moments than creepy ones with love Kay um, uh, hey, well, thank you for writing in Kay yeah. uh, let's see um, Star Trek romance I'll, I'll, name, I'll, I'll name my favorite which didn't used to be canon and now it is uh-huh. Bashir and Garrick <laughs> Bashir and Garrick. Bashir is the, oh. we just talked about. He's the doctor on Deep Space Nine, and there is a Cardassian who has a mysterious past and is living on Deep Space Nine. He's living as a tailor, and yeah. nobody knows if he was like, if he is a spy or was a spy or Every, what he did. During, everyone says he might have been a spy, but yeah. everything he says is really elusive, and and he's and he. he he, and he gets off on being elusive. Yeah, he, he does, loves he, it. He, he loves obfuscating. Yeah. And he also clearly from episode one has a huge crush on Bashir. And Bashir isn't entirely not into it. <laughs> like you can tell he's a little surprised by the attention, but he's also not pushing him away. Mm. And subtextually, a lot of people assume that they were in love, whether or not they were aware of it. Mm. And over time, that became like official canon. And indeed, they actually did like. The, the, the actors did, like, a, a radio script or something, which uh-huh. was actually talking about them years in the future after they had, like, been married or something. And, like, <laughs> it, but, and it is considered canon now. They, they did actually oh, well, okay. have a relationship. And I think that's great. Right. And their relationship together is really cute, and I like it. Um, the other, another one I like is also from Deep Space Nine, and that's uh, Dax and Worf. Mm. Dax and Worf are really good together. Dax gets Worf, and yeah. Worf gets Dax, and they're really, you know, they, they've got sexual chemistry, and they got respect, and they actually match each other for their, like, bravado. I, I they're like, cool. I like Dax, like, conceptually, but I feel like they didn't really do too many interesting things with their character. There's so much more yeah. they could have done. Um, and they're still good. I mean, Dax is still around somewhere, theoretically, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, you'd think in Star Trek Discovery the Dax symbiote's probably out and about. Uh, I... In in my head canon, uh, Bashir ended up taking on Dax at some point. They oh, like, like they, yeah, he actually they, became the host. Like yeah, like Bashir okay. became the host at one point. That's an interesting theory. That yeah. could be that could be fun. Just that, that yeah. just in terms of that would be a fun yeah. story. There's no, nothing in the show to indicate that. Uh, leaving uh, for a moment, uh, Deep Space Nine out of it. Uh-huh. What other romances come to mind? Um, really I like? wrote an essay today on the romance between Captain Picard and Doctor Crusher. Oh, that's how, nice. Uh, how yeah. they're. Um, I th- I thought the show was actually very tactful about giving them constant romantic tension without feeling the need to constantly break it or skirt up to it from mm. time to time. And uh, by the time we catch up with them in Star Trek Picard, they have mm. a 20-year-old son that Picard didn't know about. And, uh, uh, and oh, now that. Th- 
and now they're they they're completely at odds now mm-hmm. they they try to romance it didn't really work it's and now they're they're sort of like animosity mm-hmm. i like that we didn't actually see the romance part uh we got the interesting parts of that story the the romance is not the interesting part of the uh the dr crusher captain picard story because mm-hmm. those two characters are they're both leaders mm-hmm. he's the captain she's the chief medical officer uh, they're both incredibly intelligent. They're both very well reasoned. They're both very mature. Yeah. They would kill each other. <laughs> they would not make a good couple at all. Like they're 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 so well matched that yeah. you. But when you finally get, the, can you like can you imagine them sure. like going back to the same quarters in Canubial Bliss and not fighting? Yeah, like I can't. Now there's a, there's a there's a really good uh, there's an old commercial I really liked I forget what it was for but the idea was uh, honesty is great mm. and so it was uh, two people at the end of a date mm. and like they're up on the porch at the door one of them's about to go inside and it's like hey this was really fun and like yeah yeah it was really really fun we should do this again sometime I'd really like that. But not together. Oh, no, 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 no. Not you and me. <laughs> Nobody wants that. <laughs> and I was just like, wouldn't it be great if life was always this honest? And like, there are some people who, it seems like they'd be really good together, but in actuality, they wouldn't. Because just because you have a certain amount of chemistry, there, there's even a bit like this on Buffy the Vampire Slayer in season three, where uh, there's a, uh, a novice watcher like hmm. who's like training to be Buffy's new watcher and he's got like a possible will he or won't he with cordelia who's in high school so it's fucking gross but um at the end when they think they're all gonna die and the world's gonna end they do have one kiss after all of the sexual tension has been built up and it's really awkward and it's like oh do we try it again and so they do and they're like we're never talking about this again (laughs) so it doesn't always doesn't always work out star trek romances are a bit tricky because um Star Trek is is a workplace drama, mm-hmm. and romance between co-workers kind of gets in the way of their working relationships yeah. a lot of the time. It's not against uh, the rules, but it is generally discouraged. Yeah. 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 And uh, sometimes you get, like, uh, like the relationship between Kira and Odo. It's... Mm-hmm. Um, they're they're not in the federation so mm-hmm. their dynamic is a little bit different but they're also she's also his boss technically yeah, so but they're also kind of uh, an old married couple yeah like they've yeah. known each other for a really long yeah. time uh so it, actually like pursuing romantic relationships between the main characters has has always struck me as a little bit anathema to what the show is about that's true but there's a lot of episodes where they have relationships with other people either mm. people who yeah. this is an old girlfriend who comes back into town or i met a guy on a new planet and they're hot or I mean, hell, uh, Riker wooed someone who's non-binary once. Yeah. Um, not a great episode of Memory Serves, but they tried. Yeah, they, they, they were trying to address, like, gender issues before they really had, like, the vocabulary to handle that kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. So uh, it, it, it comes off across really awkward, but it, yeah. it was it was ambitious for the, the early 90s. I really like how they're handling, um, and, and I think the fact that it's a prequel kind of helps it a little bit. Uh, the love triangle between Spock to Pring and Nurse Chapel in Strange New Worlds. Oh yeah, they, they yeah sort of a new thing. Yeah, yeah uh, in the original series, Nurse Chapel was quite visibly in love with Spock, and Spock. Oh, she even said it out loud. Oh, she said yeah. it like I said visibly, like we knew. And Spock was kind of aware, but he was also just not interested mm. and just never really gave her the time of day. 
Um, and we did find out that he was engaged to this person named Tepring. That didn't go great. Um, so we know he's not destined to end up with either of these people, but at this moment in time in Strange New Worlds, he is engaged to Tepring. They're actually quite good together. Mm-hmm. You know, they're going through a lot, and they're... They're trying they're, to do a long-distance thing because yeah. he's on a ship. Yeah. And they're, tr- they're actively trying to make it work, and it's nice to see a story about people in a relationship in a, in a show or a movie where... Ending up with a cool person isn't the end of their story. It mm. still requires that work. There's right. still yeah. drama. That always drove me nuts. People talked about Spider-Man. Like, uh, Spider-Man shouldn't be married. There's no more stories to tell. And I'm like, you have not been married. <laughs> that is not true. Yeah. There's well, always stuff. Look, there, there is so much fucking drama in long-term relationships. There is. It's just you grow, they grow. Mm. You have bad things happen. Uh, you know, there's a, Sometimes it's super dramatic. Sometimes it's small, but it feels really, really big. And... It's ju- it's still life. It's still got, you know, uh, uh, difficulties and conflict. It's just, if you're in it together and you're really trying, you're making mm. it beautiful and the, and the effort is important. Yeah. So I really like the way that they're portraying that story with effort, but I also really like this incredibly, like, natural kind of uh, uh, appeal and allure that Spock feels towards Nurse Chapel. I really like the way they've rewritten Nurse Chapel on that show. <laughs> Such a great character. Mm. So I like that uh, love triangle a lot. I really can't think of anything from the original series mm. that struck me as healthy <laughs> or... The, the, or the whole Roddenberry thing. Yeah, or even like the ones that were Not even of, between McCoy and his robot slave women no multiple robot slave women no even and even like the one everyone talks about like oh isn't it so sad that kirk fell in love with edith keeler and mm. you know, yeah and city on the edge of forever but she had to die no she didn't <laughs> oh you had time travel there's a million solutions to that problem that didn't end oh, with her dying and you decided to just let her die mm. all you had to do is pluck her from the time stream you go back to the future with her boom Hitler didn't win. You you succeeded, and she lived. You have no compunctions about bringing people from the past into the future. You do it all the time. You did it in Voyage Home. No one complained about it. No one said, oh my god, the mom from Child's Play is here. That's going to fuck up everything. No one said that. Everyone was fine with it. Chucky, Just, was, Chucky was there, too. He was there. Brad Dourif was on, yeah. was on Voyager. Voyager. Yeah. So it's, it's all canon. Was Chris Sarandon ever in Star Trek? He was. There you go. Played a character named Martis. He opened up a rival bar to Quark. (laughs) Forgot about that. Uh, That's Chris Sarandon. Yeah. Oh my God! Is there anyone else in in Child's Play that we? Is Jennifer Tilly ever in Child's Play? Uh, You mean in Star Trek? I'm sorry, uh, yeah, she, she was in Child's Play. Which yeah, ever in Star Trek? Um, no, I don't, I, don't so. I don't think Jennifer Tilly has ever been on Star Trek. What about Trek? Meg Tilly? Would that count? <laughs> <laughs> Meg Tilly is an underrated Tilly. That's all I'm going to say. Jennifer Tilly they're gets both, all of the... They're both very talented. Jennifer Tilly gets all the credit, but Meg Tilly was a very, very talented mm. actor, and they do not get their due. Watch Abel Ferrara's well, Body Snatchers. She has a monologue in that movie. It's one of the best monologues in any horror movie they, ever. If, if you go to the, uh, the Star Trek fan website, it's called uh, Memory Alpha, mm-hmm. They list all of the actors that appeared on Star Trek, and then they give them a bi- like a, a little miniature biography. Mm-hmm. But all of the all of their credits are who they acted with opposite other actors who are on Star Trek. Oh yeah, yeah it's like this I've great web of all these. Like um, I looked up Adam Scott yeah. on uh, on uh, because he was the the Defiant crew member, and yeah, uh, yeah it, and it lists all of his credits and all these like really tiny obscure indie movies he was in in his early yeah. career with other actors who just like were extras in Star Trek ones. They all kind of yeah. brushed up against Star Trek. I can't remember if anyone point. from Torque was ever in 
Is ever in Star Trek? I don't think so. Ice Cube would be great in Star Trek. We should bring him in. Who, who would Ice Cube? Would he play like an whoever ad, he an wants, angry admiral? Whoever he wants, bring him in. I'm down. Um, anyway, Captain Ice Cube from the USS Good Day. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, we should move on. But right. thank you, Kay. That was a really fun one. Uh, here's a letter from Jinxie. Hello, Hi, Jinxie. Jinxie. Uh, dear Whitney and Bibbs. Uh, this is another Star Trek question. Oh. Um, I've been considering time loops and multiverses lately. Mm. This is obviously because of a certain movie. I speak, of course, of Groundhog Day. Mm. It was recently Groundhog recently Day. Recently was Groundhog Day. Uh, I asked my friends if it was a time loop or a multiverse, and they said time loop, mm. but that it was possible to have both because Star Trek has time loops and the mirror universe. Yep. This led me to wonder... And I'd like to ask you both a hypothetical question. What sort of alternative universe would you create for Star Trek? Ooh, Thanks, Jinxie. Star Trek. Well, like, because we've already had... Mm, we have some good ones. Uh, we, had, we had the one where everyone's evil. Yeah, we had the Mirror Universe. That's mm. the most prominently known yeah. one. And I guess the, the new Kelvin timeline. That's the Kelvin timeline. Another, mm. another beloved one is the universe where uh, it was... All of Star Trek is a fiction created by a sci-fi writer in the 1950s. Oh, the Beyond the Farthest Star. Yeah. Beyond the Farthest Star universe. Mm. Kind Star of its own new. thing. Um, that author yeah. uh, showed up in Strange New Worlds. Did they? Did uh, I miss that? What I miss that? Well, uh, D- Dr. Mbenga was uh-huh. reading a bedtime story to his daughter. Uh-huh. Was it written by? And it was written by oh, I missed the, that. the author that, uh, that uh, Avery Brooks played in that flashback episode. That, oh, shit. That's, that's an that's, Easter that's, egg. Yeah, a cute little Easter egg. That anyway. blows my fucking mind. Well, shit, that really did happen, didn't it? Fuck. <laughs> it's all connected. We're through the looking glass, people. Um, okay, so here's the deal. If you're going to create an alternate reality for Star Trek, first mm-hmm. off, you need to imagine that either it's a reality you'd want to visit in a vacuum, or more likely you would want characters from Star Trek to visit it mm-hmm. and experience it and all of its weirdness. Okay. So, where do we go? Well, let's see. We... We've imagined se- actually several universes, uh-huh. at least two, because uh, the latest or the second season of Picard also yeah. had like an evil universe. Yeah. So there, there's all plenty of uh, possibilities of like evil universe. Yeah, like there, but for the grace of God. Sort I of would stuff. like to see um, a universe where humanity didn't become the dominant uh, form of life on Earth. Oh, that'd be interesting. And so they visit a planet where it's or, or visit an alternate reality where it's the Federation. Yeah. But they're all like humanoid allosauruses or something, like in dinosaurs. <laughs> like, that'd be kind of cool. Yeah. Um, and they like they met the Gorn, and they were just like, "Well, high five. Let's not fight. We're cool." Um, starting to ponder this question, though, does reveal uh, a great weakness in Star Trek. Mm. Uh, Star Trek is a show about the Federation. It's about Starfleet. It's about trekking yeah. in a ship and uh, what goes on on those ships and how those ships operate and the command structure on those ships. Yeah. The world outside of the Federation in Star Trek is very ill-defined. Uh, there yeah. isn't sort of like this general idea as to what the world is like. You can do just about any kind of sci-fi world outside of the Federation if you want. And, and you've been telling me that yeah. uh, Picard is one of the few shows where you've actually spent a meaningful amount of time outside Starfleet, and it mm-hmm. kind of just looks like Blade Runner. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, like they go into the criminal underworld, and it's just Blade Runner. Yeah. And, and there's a Ferengi there. That's the only difference. Yeah. Um, so uh, a, a parallel universe would have to involve like characters and things we know, mm. but altered in some way. Right. So uh, it would still have to be Starfleet. So you can have... We have a ambitious, explorative Starfleet. Yeah. Uh, we've had evil Starfleet, the yeah. Empire. Yeah. Uh, what about a Starfleet that's like... 
not devoted to exploration. Okay. Capitalism? Mm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, like a capitalistic Starfleet. What yeah, would it I mean, look like if they if had they, sort of like our money values? Yeah. But the technology well, okay. of Starfleet. I got it. What if when uh, Zephyr Cochran, hmm. he made his first warp flight? Okay. And the plot of Star Trek First Contact, as we know, is he makes his first warp flight at a time when the Vulcans happen to be flying by. They noticed that this new planet had just achieved warp capability, and the Vulcans become our point of first contact, and they, with their much vaunted and very respectable uh, logic, uh-huh. helped us form the Federation. What if it wasn't the Vulcans? What if it was the Ferengi? Oh, there you go. So, Boom. like, we're brought... The, the plot is also that um, Earth is is in a really bad spot. They just yeah. survived some world wars. There's barely yeah. any survivors left. A lot of the planets irradiated. And yeah. the idea of meeting an alien is like this, this glimmer of hope yeah. in this dark time. Right. And yeah, what if it was the Ferengi and they said, oh, we can we can fund your rebuilding. Yeah. We can give you your planet. But you owe, you us Yeah, you're going to use something. all your natural resources. Yeah. Uh, have you got any uh, latinum? What sort of minerals could we add to that latinum? Hmm. Gold, you said. <laughs> what is it? Gold exists throughout the galaxy. I know, it's a but joke. <laughs> it's a joke. So that'd be kind of fun. Yeah. That'd be a neat one. Um, I'm trying to think maybe something a little bit more like specific. I I, I like the ones where it's like um, it's like the Sliders rules. Mm. Sliders was a show in the 1990s. I think in the early 2000s as well. Uh, where uh, big, big hit at the time. Nobody was, talks about it anymore. It was a pretty big yeah. hit for a couple of years. And then it just sort of kept going because it wasn't that expensive to produce. But uh, basically it was like Quantum Leap. But instead of jumping into different bodies and different parts in the timeline, they would jump into different alternate realities sort of uncontrollably. And... Almost all of the realities, there was usually, like, one thing that was different. So, like, one of the first episodes, they leaped into a reality where penicillin had never been invented. And, mm. you know, there was still modern civilization, but everyone was ravaged by disease. <laughs> um, so, yeah, they, they, you in, go. In one of the parallel universes, it was... Um, all of culture was like intellectual culture. Everyone mm-hmm. studied and you yeah. know, were were very well learned. Yeah, there was an, there was one episode, clunky but I suppose well intentioned, uh, where instead of uh, the majority of human civilization being patriarchal, it was matriarchal. Okay, uh, and uh, so mm. you got to explore that, and boom, yeah. boom. So, um, so imagine I'm trying to imagine like what's like a major event in Star Trek that you could like undo. Like, what if instead of the Klingons having a natural disaster occur and or or a Klingon-made disaster occur and having to end the Cold War by coming to the Federation for help? Mm. What if it was the opposite? Star Trek VI. Yeah. Yeah. What if it was the opposite? What if the Federation had to go to the Klingons for help and the Klingons ended up sort of gradually taking over Starfleet and making them more in their own image? Yeah. Could have been a thing. So like everyone's yeah. living now under the yoke of Kling- that would be an interesting parallel universe. Yeah, like all of, all of the human characters we know, but now they're yeah, like they have Klingon s- values. Yeah, they're yeah. they're living on the Klingon homeworld, and yeah, yeah they, they carry the Klingon live by the Klingon warrior way. That could be cool, right? That, that could, could be, be cool. Yeah, and it's fun to think about. Yeah, what if we could workshop oh, something? Oh, I got it! I got it! I got it! What if there's a reality? Hmm. Where Guinan isn't running ten forward, but Doctor Soren is. <laughs> <laughs> and if you know what I'm talking about, that just blew your mind. They're the same species. You know, I just heard uh, a yeah. popping noise coming from your general direction. Your mind blown. <laughs> hey Kay, are you still listening? Was your mind blown? <laughs> uh, anyway, 
Here, here's a. Uh, these are all Star Trek letters. My Let's God. Do okay. It. Here's a letter from Siege. Hello, Siege. Mm-hmm. Um, it says, "Dear Bib three five nine and Wit eight four seven two. Do you know the significance of those numbers? Uh, Same again. Bib Bib three five nine. Yeah. Uh, Wolf three five nine was the location of the uh, the Borg battle, and it says Wit eight four seven two. Species eight four seven two was like the species that came from like a liquid dimension and they were like really aggressive and even the Borg couldn't handle them. Okay, that one I just didn't know. Well, that, yeah, that's from Voyager. Um, I'm writing to share a little anecdote about how the best of both worlds hmm. ca- taught me the concept of television seasons at a young oh. age. Uh, for some background, I've been a fan of Star Trek as far back as I can remember. I was born in 1985 and some of my earliest memories are of watching The Voyage Home, Search for Spock, and Next Generation on television. By 1990, when I was five years old, it had already... It, it was already a habit to tune in each week to see the latest adventures of the crew of the Enterprise D, a habit that would continue all the way until the series ended in 1994 when I was nine. Yeah, good good time for it. Wonderful time. Um, I distinctly remember uh, excitedly watching Best of Both Worlds Part 1 with my grandfather, mm-hmm. who regularly looked at me... Uh, after looked at me from time to time doing due to being the child of a single mother mm. the shock and awe i felt when my young mind heard mr Worf, fire <laughs> and for the first time uh, for the first time resonates me to this day as a 38 year old man i eagerly eagerly tuned in the following week to see the conclusion only to be devastated by the episode on television to be one i had already seen <laughs> upset i asked my grandfather why we were seeing a rerun a concept i was already familiar with from watching cartoons mm. when the last episode said to be continued at the end my grandfather explained to me that tv shows have seasons and have to take breaks for a while in between to film new episodes. I asked when the next new episode would be, and he told me that, quote, I will just have to wait and see, kiddo, with a wink. Uh, I was uh, <laughs> I was able to grasp the concept, for a, and for a few months later, I started seeing commercials for the season premiere mm-hmm. of Star Trek. I marked it on the calendar on my bedroom wall uh, and crossed X's on each day to count down when I'd finally be able to see if Riker had killed Picard. <laughs> Nice. And so my five-year-old brain became aware of cliffhangers and TV seasons because of the best of both worlds. And I'll forever be grateful for that because the knowledge that would later shape my television viewing habits throughout my childhood. Thanks for reading my letter, gentlemen. And remember that resistance is futile and also live long and prosper. Siege. Thank you so um, much. That, and you yeah. know what? That's true. What I love about you know sharing these experiences from when we're young uh-huh. and we're experiencing movies and TV and art, whatever form, for its very first time is we all have these moments where we come to a realization about mm. how things work. Yeah. But they're not the same exact moment. Mm. Not everyone will have that revelation or that uh, understanding of the way the industry works or whatever through that episode of Star Trek. Mm. Um, I still remember very vividly, I was very young, and I was watching an episode of The Wonder Years. Okay. And... Not an unimportant episode of The Wonder Years. They were at a party or something. Who cares? Uh, but all of a sudden, it occurred to me, wait a minute. They're not making this dialogue up on the fly. <laughs> Someone had to, like, write that. And they probably, like, did a couple of drafts. And then they, they gave it to the actors. And the actors are, like, interesting. And they, they read it. And then they put it in front of some cameras. And wait a minute, there's a whole bunch of different angles in this thing. They probably had to film it multiple times. Mm. Oh, that's so inconvenient. Oh, it's a miracle these things happen. And all of a sudden, just suddenly this awareness that 
that I, this I, is I, a fictional construct. Yeah, and I didn't understand all the details, but the, just the sudden general awareness of just how complicated it was to create something that when you're watching it feels so intuitive and natural. Mm. And that's when I realized, I gotta do something with that. <laughs> that's that's my career right yeah. there. I don't know what I'm gonna do. I ended up, I ended up talking about it mostly but like that's that thrilled me and i guarantee you that episode of the wonder years nobody else had an epiphany (laughs) no one else had like changed their life watching some some shitty mediocre episode of the wonder years i i'm interested to know how little little kids these days Mm. uh, are learning to mark like mentally mark off the passage of time yeah uh, because I can tell you for sure that not just me, other other kids around my age, learned what three thirty in the afternoon was because that's when a certain show came on the air. Sure, uh, I know when it's going to be four o'clock because mm. my show comes on. Yeah, but nowadays uh, you don't have now to watch it's all TV on demand. Live. Yeah, you can if you want to, but yeah. you don't have to. So uh, yeah. the idea of having to wait for a certain time to see your show is mm. not something that kids these days understand. You still have to wait for new episodes to be made. Mm. That's something. But that you watch do. them as soon as they're available. It's not. Well, that that varies. Some of them are mm. episodic. But um, yeah, I, let me ask you a question. Um, do you still to this day feel like the year begins in September because that's when the school year begins? No. no that no, took me like no. 20 years Although, uh, to get over that. Because of when my birthday is, I yeah. was able to really clearly delineate uh, what my age was in relation to my grade when I was going to school. Yeah, because you were like uh, born towards I was born, the beginning of the school year. No, I was born in the dead of summer, uh, like right. right in the middle. So uh, like just before the beginning of the school year. In fact, uh, my, I guess I can just say it. My birthday is the 1st of August. Okay. And that's like in the middle of this like holiday drought. Mm-hmm. It's like the, the last one before that is 4th July 4th. of July. Yeah. Uh, and then if, Labor if the Day, United which States. is and then, then, yeah, barely then, like, a holiday. Labor Day, not really. It's a day um, off, but you're already out of school, but so yeah, who cares? The entire month of August yeah. is just nothing. Like for, yeah. J- July, August, September, there's like no major holidays in the United States. Yeah, but you get um, presents. But I, yeah, I, I, I felt like that was, I could sort of string together the holidays with my birthday. It's a good sweet uh, spot. It's a good t- it is a good time to be born. Mm. So... What would be what would be the month you would have to like start like getting amorous in order to guarantee that? That would be like <laughs> January, like late December, January. Boom, no, no, August. Nine months would be November, dude. Fine. <laughs> Not human human gestational period. Typically nine months. Wait, Nate, let me ask you a question. Do you think I'm a I'm a professional film critic because I'm good at math? <laughs> because I assure you that it's not the case. No, but you can count barely. <laughs> Uh, I left. I left high school, mm. and I never thought about math again. <laughs> well, I learned your I, loss. I remember. I remember addition. Mm. I remember subtraction, multiplication, a little bit of division. You, and, but you can like graph a function, right? From like trigonometry, something pretty basic, or, or you know, volume of a cone, just your basic geometry kind of stuff. That's I can still, look it up on some Google. of that stuff. Kind of lingers, right? No. no, no. I could give you the area. Okay. And um, that's about it. Area of what? I don't know, a square. Okay. <laughs> like, oh, so what's the... So Based this, on sight, that's easy. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Boom. Got it. <laughs> but no, I'm not... Uh, I, I, I didn't have to know it. Yeah. And I don't. <laughs> and it's great. Volume of a cone. Uh, uh, yeah. It's however, it's however much is in there. Area of, area of the circle times uh, the height of the cone divided by one... Divided <laughs> by three. You, you look yeah. at me... You, do, you, do you look at me and think, there's a guy who knows how to get the area of a circle. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm going to tell you this right now. Math is great. Pi R squared. I have nothing but respect for math and the people who are good at math. Uh, I was able, when I was actively studying it, hmm. to be good at math. Okay. And the second I didn't have to anymore, hmm. out the door. I, Boom. I was always I had really, to make uh, room for like Mario Bava movies. Like I just, it's, it's I, I was always interested in like math and science. I liked numbers and stuff, yeah. uh, and I was. I, I wasn't always great at it. I, yeah. I, you know, I sometimes I had to struggle, especially if you're like trig. Uh, but yeah. when I got to college, I thought, well, the next step is calculus. I'll just take a calculus one on one class, <laughs> and calculus completely evaded me. Yeah, uh, I was. You, you, I was you, you good at this point where if you're no, not great, like, just amazing at all math, you hit, there's always a wall you hit eventually. Yeah. So yeah. so it's like I was I was understood. I had my yeah. head completely around these concepts, and yeah. I got into calculus, and I just couldn't. The, the, it was too complicated. The, for the me. one thing I start I kind of glommed onto a little bit when we did trig was uh-huh. that was when we started doing uh, trigonometry. That was when we started doing uh, probabilities. Okay. I wasn't awful at probabilities. Yeah. But that's it. That's it. That we're done. Um, so yeah, unless if you have a job that requires math, please be good at math. <laughs> like math can be great. If you're a film critic, you don't need a lot. Actually, it's pretty basic math. You, you're you're in and out. <laughs> you ever worry? Uh, you ever worry that your permanent record is still coming and get you? My permanent record? Remember when they used to say, this will go in your permanent record? And I'm no, like, I no. am 40, and no one has brought that up no, no, since I was 17. Nobody's ever... Uh, nobody, uh, Even when I was a kid, nobody talked yeah. about my permanent record. I, oh, I got, the, I got the vague threats. Like, ah, oh, if you skip class, it'll go on your permanent record. And I'm like, no one cares now. No it's like, one you know, It's like your cares. SAT scores. Like, it's, you're, you're, it's, you're, they're, it's, important, they're important for a, a small well, window, and then they stop becoming important. The SAT scores are important for a small window, I'll give you. But I think most of the time, unless you're doing something like legitimately terrible, uh, when they say this will go on your permanent record, that's the... That's like the principal's equivalent of if you kids don't stop that right now, I'm turning this car around and we're not going to visit grandma. We are going to visit grandma. That is an empty ass threat. Oh, sorry, grandma. They, yeah. they, they were misbehaving. We were so in the driveway. Come, uh, you were waving goodbye, but I'm sorry. There was too much tickling. <laughs> too much, so too much roughhousing. We're driving back to Michigan. Like, oh, shit. Anyway. Uh, okay, here's another letter. <laughs> Moving on. Um, Here's another letter from Name Redacted. If you don't sign mm. it at the bottom, I'm not going to read your name from the mm. top. So this is uh, Name Redacted. Um, this says, uh, you mentioned on a recent episode of uh, Letters that Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris is a film for adults. I would argue that it is a film for children, albeit one that adults can get a deeper layer, layer of meaning from. Okay. Uh, that's a kind of movie that uh, is not made much anymore, and I found it interesting that Mrs. Harris was not really marketed to children. Mm. I read the book it was based on myself when I was about 11, mm-hmm. uh, when it first came out back in the 1960s. I would have loved the movie at that age, mm. and I refuse to believe that the kind of preteen girl and a few boys uh, would who would love it aren't still around. Mm. They've been uh, forgotten by marketers, though. Everybody thinks that all kids only want stupid, colorful, noisy animation or stupid, colorful, noisy superheroes. Uh, and that's the letter. That you uh, know what you're not you're not wrong. Yeah, that the, there's a, the, there's um, a, there's that expectation. Yeah. Of what people are into, and there's in a general way maybe they have a point, but it's really reductive, and we're denying people an opportunity to discover and learn mm-hmm. about other stuff. And you're right. You know what, Mrs. Harris goes to Paris is totally a kids movie. To- totally appropriate for kids. It's anyway, totally appropriate. Yeah, kids. But... I, again, I saw the Angela uh, Angela, not Angela, not Angelica Houston. 
Angela Lansbury? Angela Lansbury. I saw the Angela Lansbury version with right. Stevie Movie when I was a kid. I loved it as a kid. Hmm. You know what else I loved as a kid? I loved Little Women. Uh-huh. I loved Auntie Maine. Well, I, like, I feel those like... Those um, books are very, very much up kids' alleys, but I feel yeah. like when it comes to movies, they think, oh, here is a movie about, like, in the case of Miss Harris, because the Paris... There's a woman who's like in her fifties who wants to buy a dress. Hmm. Well, is that really going to get the Shrek audience? And it's like, well, well no, I, uh, but that's not everybody, yeah, and there's I, a total I've audience read, for this. I, there's a, a habit of certain filmmakers and like TV showrunners to assume that a kid uh, will only want to see a. a Something about kids. Yeah. They want to make something about adult characters. Yeah. And if they have something about adult characters, sometimes they'll add kids. Remember when uh, the, the the animated series, The Real Ghostbusters, which was, you know. Oh, yeah. yeah. It was about the four adult Ghostbusters. Yeah. And, and that then was after, a hit among kids. It was such a hit that the network brought in outside contractors to tell them how they're doing it wrong mm. so they can do it better, and they had this list of incredibly arbitrary changes. And they added, like, like kid characters. One of the yeah. things was, we need kid characters because kids can't see themselves in the show. We are seeing ourselves. We're seeing ourselves as adults mm. doing this cool job. Yeah. But, like, those outside contractors are the ones who are like, um, like, you know, Winston's doing too much. From now on, he's the driver. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, fuck off. <laughs> Like you know, oh, you know, I, oh I see. So, so yeah. the, the, these uh, these people are racist yeah. as well. Janine has too much agency. Now we need to make sure that. Oh, she's and they're also a, sexist. She needs to be right. more of a mother figure. Also, her glasses are like thin triangles, and those have pointy edges, and those will scare little kids. So you need to change your glasses to be circles. What? Why? Because kids are scared of pointy triangles. Uh-huh. So you need to change your glasses so oh, that they're God. circles. To their credit, later on in the series, they did an episode that explained why halfway through the series, Janine looked a little different. <laughs> and it turns out she had a genie, and she was like having the genie like change parts of herself she wasn't happy about. It was all less than about being happy with the way you are uh-huh. and everything like that. They, they made yeah. it work, basically. But okay. yeah. <laughs> At least they wrote it into canon. They, they found a way to sort of comment on how mm. bullshit that was. But anyway, I digress. Oh, um, I feel like kids' literature, though, mm-hmm. uh, has has changed form a lot in the last uh, couple of decades. Uh, when you know, when we were kids, and sort of like the the nineteen eighties, uh, and I, I'm not a kid now, so I don't know yeah. what it's like. But I feel like yeah. we were. Uh, at least at our school, a little, little bit more classics bent. Yeah. There was a little bit more focus on things like the Secret Garden, uh, yeah, Secret Garden, Treasure Island, Little Women, the Hobbit. Um, yeah, yeah the, even if that wasn't part of school, it was part mm. of just the general children's literature the, milieu. There were like kids' and, reading uh, lists you'd have like over the summer, and they'd have at libraries, yeah, and like yeah, that. And those are the kinds of books that would be mm. on that list constantly. Yeah. And I think the big turning point was Harry Potter. Uh, that. Those books were such a juggernaut mm-hmm. that uh, there was some debate as to whether or not they uh, constituted mere pop entertainment or if they should be put on, like, school reading lists. And mm-hmm. teachers argued, said, the kids are reading. Who cares? Yeah. Uh, so a lot of schools started assigning Harry Potter books. And the thing is, that's uh, and people people balk at that, but, like, school reading lists changed all the time. They changed all the time. You, you, you that's add fine, new but, canon. It's but fine. The yeah. point is, those books were so yeah. big, it yeah. changed the commercial viability of kids' literature into something mm-hmm. completely different. Yeah. Uh, and there was a lot more fantasy, and then Twilight was another one, and there yeah. was a lot more sort of monstrous romances for a long time. All these people were chasing trends, yeah. and a lot of the imitators started becoming big as well. Yeah. 
it's, so, it's, it's just because you're an image, just because you're following away doesn't mean you're not also good. Yeah, and and so, so a lot of yeah. the sort of popular trends in kids' literature became very mythology heavy, mm-hmm. very super powered oriented, and uh, things like Little Women mm-hmm. were always humming there in the background. Sure, uh, and they always will be. Yeah, but I feel like. Uh, Kids yeah. are maybe a little less drawn to things like that. Well, I think I don't think it's a matter that they're not drawn to it. I think it's a matter of they're being more like laser targeted, yeah, in a certain way. And I think what young adult fiction kind of and listen, I'm not an expert in what's going on in the literary world, but it's just my general sense based on yeah, this, what these are all general. If uh, if you're a librarian, yeah, or work in a bookshop, or or just know a lot about the history of children's literature, I'd love to hear about. Yeah, it. especially if we're getting anything wrong, please let mm-hmm. us know. But um, what what a lot of those books have in common. Whether they're good or bad, or they're Harry Potter and we just don't support them anymore. Mm. Uh, but they have in common, a lot of them, is that they are about young people. But here's the thing, and this is the thing that I think capitalism did this, and they might regret it later. There was a whole generation from about 2000 to 2012, 2015, mm. that was raised on literature about kids fighting fascists literally <laughs> fighting fascists yeah, like, like it was literally that was your job kind of stuff and, yeah. yeah the world is shit adults don't know how to run anything and it is your specific responsibility not to just live your life as best you can within a horrible world but to actively change it and you know what i think we're seeing some of the fruits of that labor yeah, yeah. so i a part of me like I, I rolled my eyes because you know it's a trend and it's easy to roll your eyes well, at a trend, trend or yeah, what seems like a fad, but yeah. I actually think some good might have come <laughs> from this whole so generation be, of kids raised on this like anti-fascist literature. I, I, I can't yeah. be too mad about that. Yeah, I really yeah. can't. There are things I can be mad about. There's a great uh, The Onion did a great uh, article recently where it was they allegedly it's The Onion, so it's fake. But the, the, they did an, an interview with with uh, J.K. Rowling. Oh God! And uh, one of the questions was, um, how does it feel? To know that, like, the character you're famous for is the kind of character who actually fights bigotry <laughs> and would be against what you do. And, and your, your character would be yeah. fighting you. Yeah, and J.K. Rowling. And quote J.K. Rowling's uh, response was. Yeah, I, I, I write him, but in real life, I'd hate Harry Potter. <laughs> I, would, I would disagree I remember, with him about everything. I remember. Um, uh, a colleague of ours, uh, Mr. Dave White, a yeah. very good critic. Um, he and and his husband Alonso run the the Linoleum Knife podcast, and they're great. Uh, and and they're, I, I I could never hope to be as good as them. We don't um, talk about them enough. If you listen to our show and you don't listen to Linoleum Knife, you would like Linoleum. You, Knife. You'd like Please l- check them definitely out. check out Linoleum Knife. Yeah. Um, but I remember when Ender's Game, the movie yeah. version of Ender's Game, came out. Now, yeah. if you know anything about Orson Scott Card, yeah. You know he's a homophobic dickhead. Yeah, and he's, uh, he's actively and contributed he's, to homophobic causes. And yeah, yeah. He, he has s- spoken in public, like said things out loud in public mm-hmm. uh, about how horrible he is and yeah. how much he hates gay people. And yet you read something like uh, Ender's Game, mm-hmm. and that's actually a story about uh, pacifism mm-hmm. and compassion and mm-hmm. the manipulation of the war machine, mm-hmm. and, and, uh, and the horrors of bigotry about, and, yeah, about and, treating and people treat, as less treat, than, yeah, as, as treating monsters an alien species as monsters yeah. just yeah. for the sake of the war effort. Yeah. Uh, and Dave White said Orson Scott Card 
needs to sit down and read Orson Scott Card. Yeah. Uh, because his book is actually smarter than he is now. I, I actually, listen, I'll tell you this. I, mm. I, I don't, I, I have trouble supporting Orson Scott Card in any mm. meaningful way, but the movie is good. The movie is good. The movie has good messaging. Mm. It's excitingly told. It's nicely visualized. The movie, if you watch it, it's like, that's a good movie. I don't disagree with anything mm. in that movie. It's well done. It's just the guy who made it is a fucking a, asshole. A raging homophobe. Yeah, and I just, uh, you can't, you know, and it's, and it, it's tricky. It's tricky. It's, it's, tr- it's yeah, I, uh, you know, they're just, it sucks. Mm-hmm. So anyway, um, but the important yeah. thing is Mrs. Harris goes to Paris would also fight fascism, and <laughs> as we saw in the movie, they even added more bits where she actually like stood up against like the cynical capitalist machine. Yeah. Like they, that was a nice touch, and, and it felt a... organic. It didn't feel like it was tacked on. Like it really melded into the narrative nicely. Yeah, yeah. I, I like Mrs. Harris goes. Mrs. Harris goes to Paris is great, and if you haven't seen it. Please do. Yeah, You're, it's going to put such a smile on your face. Mm-hmm. It really is. You're, it's going to. If you if you if you liked Paddington one or two, you would love <laughs> Mrs. Harris. It has that, that kind of gentle vibe. Too. Yeah, and like the, it, not unearned. There's some there's some conflict. Yeah. There's stuff that that goes wrong, but it's earned itself a happy ending, and the people in it are sweet, and mm-hmm. good things happen to good people sometimes, and it's nice, and the dresses mm-hmm. look really pretty. And a part of me really hopes it wins the Academy Award for costume design. It probably won't, but it should. It should, because the dresses are part of the story. And they're so good, yeah. and they're gorgeously yeah. photographed. And and if you want to read Orson Scott Card or J.K. Rowling, mm-hmm. shoplift. <laughs> shoplift, that's, that's get it from Goodwill. That's the just, only, yeah. only ethical thing to do is steal yeah. the book. Like, if you want to play that video game, steal it. Steal it. <laughs> just steal it. Steal it. Knock yourself out. <laughs> Like don't don't. I, I ain't got no problems. With it. Yeah, and then don't review it. Just don't give them the oxygen. Yeah. That's the like, whole thing. You're, you're it's so easy. It's so. What was it? Uh, John Mulaney said, "Doing not doing things is a hundred percent easier than doing them." Oh yeah. Like, so just all we're all we're saying is just like, hey, just don't review that game. Like just in a measure of solidarity, yeah, show that you're an ally. Just don't do it. Why are you doing? <laughs> are you that yeah. much of a dick? If, anyway, if you're like, yeah, if you're, if you're so curious that you need to play that game, yeah, steal it, steal the game. Yeah, <laughs> I'm okay with the you stealing. Thing the, to do. the ethical thing to do. Is the ethical thing to do. The the developers already got paid, and they do not get points on the back end. Do not worry about them. Moving on. Uh, here's another letter. This is a letter from Lexa. Hello, Lexa. Hi, Lexa. Uh, recently, you had your episode on the best video game movies. Yes, we did. Um, and str- the Street Fighter movie came up. Mm. In that section, you mentioned that M. Bison got his name changed by accident. This is not true. Oh, really? The change was intentional. What? Uh, in the Street Fighter community, the three characters that end up having their names swapped around were Vega, M. Bison, and Balrog uh, are referred to by monikers Claw, Dictator, and Boxer. Okay. Uh, Vega had yeah, like Vega the claw. claws. And Bison uh, is a dictator and, Bison, and, and uh, Balrog, Balrog is the boxer. Is a boxer, yeah. Uh, to make communication of what you're playing easier to understand between the, an English and a Japanese player, it's a Japanese game. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it makes telling the story easier, so I'll be using those. So originally, Boxer was named M Bison yes. in the Japanese release. It's a joke on Mike Bison. Mike Bison. Yeah. Uh, and the American translation team were worried about getting sued by Mike Tyson. Okay. Because the name and look were close enough that it could cause problems. At the same time, they thought that the name Vega wasn't menacing enough for the big bad guy Dictator, and thought that it was much more appropriate for the Matador character Claw. Okay. So they uh, thus they rotated the names around Claw, Dictator, and Boxer. Uh, the naming conventions that we know as Americans today are the ones used in the movie. So, 
It was so yeah. I guess what what we said was that um, mm. Balrog and M. Bison were swapped, but mm. I guess uh, Balrog, Vagan, and M. Bison were all rotated around. No, I said I said so. they were. I said all three of them were rotated around. Uh, but my my understanding, and I and I'm perfectly willing to accept that I was wrong about it. Um, was that it was just a localization mix-up, which is a sort of thing that was a bit more common no, uh, back before people in, were paying the, as close attention yeah, to these sorts of things. Especially in the 1980s. Yeah, yeah. You, there was a general sense that a lot of people just don't give a shit. And if you look, there's a lot of like really funny um, localization mishaps. It's, it's like All Your Base or Belong to All Us, your, if, you, stuff, yeah. if you've never seen All Your Base or Belong to Us, it's a, it's a cut scene from, I think, the Sega Genesis or Sega CD. Oh, no, when, earlier than that. Let me, it, let me look up the origin of All Your Base. Okay, but, um, but it had, it had audio. It had... Voiceover, which was like it, so it's not eight bit, but um, uh, but yeah, it the actual text that the actors were reading was oh yeah, it was the Sega Mega Drive yeah of the nineteen eighty nine arcade game mm. uh, Zero Wing Zero Wing a Japanese game called Zero Wing and the yeah. the the, tr- the Japanese mm. uh, text was translated uh, poorly into English yeah, as pro- probably your, just literally yeah, you know. all your base are belong to us yeah you can, you have no time to survive make your time. Mm. Uh, ha, 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 ha. Uh, it was one of the first internet memes that I remember very specifically because yeah. that that went around. Everyone had a good giggle because, well, that's not a great translation. Uh, and then someone turned it into like a dance remix, and it was pretty fun. Mm. Um, so th- th- oh. localization weirdness is was yeah. way less common than uh, uh, way more common yeah. back then. Uh, so I att- I attributed it to that, but that makes a lot of sense. Mm. The, I totally get like. Wanting to just sort of like listen, if we can just avoid getting sued altogether, rather than having like even a ten <laughs> yeah, percent chance, yeah. let's just call the main bad guy Michael Bison. Yeah, just a- kind of silly. But right. Well, and like I said, I thought it was French. I thought it was most Monsieur Besson, which which uh, sounds cooler if you yeah, ask me. Yeah, uh, but there, there's a little bit left here. Um, okay. Also, on the subject of video game movies, there was only one video game adaptation that probably would have made my own personal top ten that you guys didn't mention in mm. some capacity, and that was the straight to DVD King of Fighters movie ah. with Maggie Q. It's a B movie schlock, but man, do I find it fun! Uh, hope you found that interesting, Lexa. You know, I watched uh, some of that. I, I watched um, I watched the straight to uh, video Tekken movie. Okay. Uh, which is based on a fighting game I never got very good at because instead of having controls, it was like punch, kick, jump, or like hard punch, soft punch, hard kick, whatever. Yeah. It was one button was your left punch, one button was your right punch, and one button was your left kick, mm. and one button was your right kick, and somehow my brain never got used to that. <laughs> like, I just rejected it in my head. I never got comfortable with it. Um, the Tekken movie made no impression on me whatsoever. It was mm. adequate at best. Um, I saw some of the King of Fighters movie. I wasn't terribly impressed, but maybe it got better. I don't know. Maybe I just uh, I, yeah, I should watch well, the whole thing sometime. I'm trying to think of like other video game movies that we just didn't mention. There was the animated Street Fighter movie from like the nineties that was oh, like yeah. uh, I, really I, I didn't cool see that, but I remember it came really out, cool yeah. animation. Like the animation was fantastic. Mm. The story was just okay. Uh, arguably better than the live action movies in terms of story, but whatever. Um, uh, here's something we didn't talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of like really popular video games out there yeah. that seem like they would make good feature films sure. uh, that have like interesting stories and characters and mythologies. Um, something like Halo, I know, has like really well, that's TV story. Oh, it is. Oh, that's yeah, right. It is. It's on yeah. Paramount. Um, yeah. They were trying uh, to make that for a long time. Like yeah. Peter Jackson was going to produce that yeah, like back but, uh, in like 2010 or something. For so many years, people have been talking about adapting a feature film out of uh, The Legend of Zelda, yeah, uh, which is 
really kind of just generic fantasy. I'm not sure what it has going for it. Depends it. on the game. Like uh, some games are there's a really cool uh, Zelda game called Majora's Mask. Okay. Which has a really fun mechanic where I think um, that was after my time, but yeah, yeah, it, it was uh, it was a second uh, Zelda game for the Nintendo sixty four, and the whole uh, thing is uh, was quite, quite old at this point. The, but really, yeah. the, the game takes place over the course of one day, and oh, over the I've course, heard of this one, you like reset the clock over before the, course, the moon crashes. Yeah, into over the Earth, course yeah. of one day, you meet a bunch of characters or whatever, but at the end of the day, the bad guy wins and like crushes the entire planet, and everyone dies, and you go back to the beginning of the day. And so there are certain things you can carry over, like your money, but for the most, or like the, the items that you have, mm. but you have to. So it's basically like. What if Lord of the Rings but Groundhog Day? Yeah. Which is, that's a twist. I suppose so. So like, there, there's some fun stuff you mm. can do with it, but mostly it's like, he's a farm boy and he gets a sword and he saves a princess and yeah. the princess is kind of cool and Ganondorf, yeah. Um, I haven't played enough of like the newer games to know what sort of character uh, Link, the main character, has. Mm. Like what sort of quality usually not he much. Is. Yeah, so yeah. I think I feel like adapting that into a movie is just going to be death. Yeah, they, they they won't be able to do that one. It would be too expensive, and what, would, whatever character they choose for Link, it's uh, not going to be correct. I think I think uh, the trick is you do Wind Waker. If anyone's played the game, that's the one with more personality than the others. Okay, I would say Wind Waker would be the. Although I haven't played like the last like two, so I don't know. All right. But uh, I would say Wind Waker is the way to go if you mm-hmm. want to do a movie. But anyway, um, I, I the the movie I'd like to see them do a really sort of cheap B movie version of mm. is a uh, uh, Metroid. Uh, yeah, that's one of my favorite cool. games. Uh, yeah. Metro, yeah. Uh, the you you are a single astronaut on this like abandoned planet, and all the mm. wildlife is taken over. It's all these weird, creepy yeah, alien parasites are taken yeah. over like the entire and, planet. And yeah, and you're, these... and you're you're a bounty hunter, and you're killing as many as you can. That's the job. Oh, is that is it? You're a bounty hunter. I think she's technically a bounty hunter. Uh, I thought she was like a researcher or something, but uh, maybe... I think she's bounty. Let me tell you. I know she's like can, uh, like a cannon on her suit, but uh... yeah. Hold on, Samus Aran. <laughs> I know her name. Uh, fictional character. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, she lands on this planet. And she has to explore this. She's a bounty hunter. Bounty hunter. Yeah, right. he's a bounty hunter. Uh, wouldn't it be great if it was just mostly silent, like the game? Yeah, and, and it's just wandering around these weird alien interiors. Mm. And uh, you, occasionally a monster shows up, and you know, maybe there's like a brief narration. I'm looking for a widget at the center mm-hmm. of the planet, and and that's it. That's the, that's their whole movie. And you're in and out in 90 minutes. That would be a good way to, to adapt something like Metroid. That'd be cool. Uh, I understand the mythology in the games is much bigger than that, mm-hmm. but don't touch any of that yet. You know, start small. I remember uh, when I was in college, um, there was a copy place, like a uh, you know, like a Kinkos, but like mom and pop. Uh, where a lot of various writers would go to make their copies and things. And they actually had, in the back, like a library of screenplays <laughs> that <laughs> had been left over. And some of them were for cool things, and one of them was like an early draft of Alien vs. Predator. Uh-huh. And that draft of Alien vs. Predator was very different from the movie we got. In fact, I think they just threw it out and started all over. Uh, but that version was mostly dialogue free it was mostly the aliens versus the predator yeah like the humans didn't show up until like the second half when they just happened the fighting happened to like Mm. come near a human colony but it was like a largely silent movie that'd be great would have been fucking awesome (laughs) i would have loved that fine yeah yeah they they chickened out we can do 
I mean, I like Son of Lethan, but yeah. no personality in that movie. I, I, I've rewatched that movie a few times over the years, most, mostly for work. You know, <laughs> yeah, have to, like research have it, re- stuff, have yeah. it fresh in my head so I can talk about it. And I was initially just really annoyed by it because you got to remember at that time, the Alien franchise was a franchise of auteurs. Like, yeah. they weren't necessarily of equal quality, but you went from, like, Ridley Scott to James Cameron very, very to David diff- Fincher. Yeah. All very different movies. To Jean-Pierre yeah. Genet. And these are all prominent filmmakers with their own distinct voices. And then we went to Paul W.S. Anderson, who doesn't really have the same ambitions artistically. Mm. And he did the Saturday morning matinee version. Mm. And... Not- Nothing wrong with that inherently. Inherently, there isn't really. I at the time I was being a snooty asshole about it. So there are things. It's still not very well written movie, not very well shot. I don't think you're allowed to be a snooty asshole about a movie where aliens roll around on the floor together in rubber suits. Like I've grown up a lot, so like I I I can appreciate Alien versus Predator as the silly Saturday matinee morning matinee version of that. It's still not particularly good, but it's okay. Requiem sucks, however. <laughs> Requiem is just terrible. Every time it's, I think it's to even myself, badly filmed. Few, every few years, I think to myself, "Oh, Requiem couldn't possibly be as bad as I remember." And then I rewatch Requiem, and I'm like, "This is worse. <laughs> this is so much worse." You know, some things get better with age. This just went skipped wine, went straight to vinegar. Whoo! Moving on. We got time for one or two more. All right. Uh, okay. Let's see. Sorry. Especially considering we missed a couple episodes. Yeah, see if we can cram so. a couple extra in. Um, uh, here is a letter from Louise. Hello, Louise. Hi, Louise. Um, hello, lovely people. Uh, first, a thank you for alerting me to the Blu-ray release of Yes, Madam on Valentine's Day. My yes. husband and I like to watch films inappropriate for the occasion, so we watched this after Psycho. <laughs> nice. <laughs> it was an excellent double bill. It's a cool double bill. I like that. Uh, yes, Madam is great, by the way. Yeah, it's uh, Michelle Yeoh and Cynthia Rothrock uh, buddy cop movie. It's just the fights are and, amazing. Oh, no. Who's the director? Somebody knows. Corian. Corian, that's right. Yeah, we just talked about it. Yeah. Uh, second, a question. In the book Dead Famous, uh, mm. which is on the history of celebrity, okay. uh, film critic James Monaco is quoted as arguing that, quote, actors play roles, stars play themselves. To what extent do you agree? For context, this quote is from 1978. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you for your podcast, Louise. Uh, I think that that speaks to the idea that a star mm-hmm. is someone who drives attendance by their very presence. Mm-hmm. People will go see a movie theoretically, specifically because Arnold Schwarzenegger is in it back at their back in his heyday. Yeah. They will go see a movie specifically because Tom Hanks was in it. Um, a lot of movie stars, I think, are also really good actors, but a lot of studios bank on them to have a consistent persona mm-hmm. that they can reliably sell. Yeah. Who was it that uh, that said that they act for free, but the publicity is what they paid for? Michelle Pfeiffer. It was Michelle Pfeiffer. Yeah, okay. she says, "I act for free. I get paid to be a celebrity." Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the idea of a movie star. Uh, movie stars don't have to be actors at all. Uh, some, some uh, like uh, Dwayne Johnson, for instance. Mm-hmm. He started as a wrestler, a different yeah. kind of performance artist. Yeah, and uh, he's turned into a movie star. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't really play a broad variety of roles. It's it's rare that he plays out of a very he, specific wheelhouse. He's tried a few times, but it's usually either like. Dwayne Johnson, but he frowns. Yeah. Or Dwayne Johnson. 
Like those are typically the two characters he plays. Every he tried a few times to do something a little different, like mm. he's playing like a little outside of his wheelhouse and be cool, and he's good in that movie. Mm. Movies just, eh, but uh, he's good in it. Mm. Um, so, but that's in that he found his niche. Yeah, I would argue that Dwayne Johnson is one of the last proper movie stars that we have. Black yeah, Adam yeah. aside, people typically pay to see mm. him right. in just about anything. Yeah. Uh, and that's uh, there, there's a bit of an irony because uh, there are excellent, constantly working character mm. actors out yes. there, supporting players who uh, maybe show up in a scene or two in a movie, and they have vast filmographies because they're mm. constantly working. Uh, they're insanely talented, mm-hmm. but because what they do is considered kind of a utility, uh, they, yeah. they, they don't get they, celebrity status. Uh, they're probably great actors, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a movie star is, is a completely different quality. It's not just about mm. opening a movie. It's, no. all, it's about um, the charisma of the person themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tom Cruise plays the Tom Cruise role. He always plays a version of Tom Cruise. Yeah, uh, there is a few the, exceptions. The, the times when he's played uh, like killers or mm. jerks, weirdly, he's pretty good at that. Yeah, like collateral. He, colla- really that collateral movie. is one of his best performances, and uh, Magnolia, I think, are his. That's yeah, his other one. He's a real. He's yeah. a fucking monster in that. But but at both of those, I think. Well, especially Magnolia. I think Magnolia. He's still playing. Tom Cruise, in a way, it's like, what if Tom Cruise was the spokesperson for, like, a really toxic cult? <laughs> right. Wait a minute. Anyway, <laughs> uh, the, the, but, but regardless, you but, but, you know what, he, he's good and born on the 4th of July, you know, he, he, he's, he's even, uh, it's, it's a comedic role, but he stretched his, his muscles a bit uh, when he did Tropic Thunder. Hmm. You know, he can't act. Yeah. But I think Tom Cruise has found that people mostly prefer it when he jumps off of things. <laughs> you know, that's that's my whole thing. Everyone's like, well, Tom Cruise is the last big movie star. And I'm like, I don't... Arguably. But here's my thing with Tom Cruise. Just as just speaking purely as a movie star, a person who drives people to a theater using that definition of movie star. Um, people don't pay to see Tom Cruise do anything... That Tom Cruise didn't do already. They pay to see him in Mission Impossible. They pay to see him in Top Gun. And I'm not saying that every other thing he does completely tanks. Mm. But we still don't have an Edge of Tomorrow sequel. Yeah. Nobody's done a sequel to American Made. Nobody saw American Made. He can't open a movie. What he can do is headline franchises that people will then get comfortable with and get excited well, about new installments. And, and that, it's interesting that you say that because that wasn't always the case with Tom Cruise. No! In fact, Tom Cruise was very uh, against doing those kinds of big franchise pictures for the longest time. Yeah. Uh, he, he, uh, Mission Impossible um, was his only thing yeah, that he yeah, did. Like and, that was, uh, Other than that, like look at his 90s. What was he? he was in Jerry Maguire. He was in Magnolia. He was in Eyes yeah, Wide he, Shut. He, he was... Uh, a, a really interesting dynamic performer mm. who was trying to do a great variety of projects. He always played a very similar character in each one. Mostly, yeah. I I, I feel like he has an incredibly limited range as an actor, but at the mm. same time, I feel like he brings that sort of it quality to whatever he does, that yeah. sort of lending it a sparkle. Uh, yeah. And the fact that he also like produces and has a lot of control over his projects probably helps. Yeah. Um, that's a movie star. That's movie star stuff. Arguably, yeah. I think uh, one of the problems we have with this kind of conversation is that not everyone agrees on the definition of the thing when you start. Yeah. So you have to establish, here's the definition we're going with. Yeah. Um, but I, I do agree with that sentiment, that, that actors, 
an actor is a completely different thing from being a movie star. And an actor is somebody who studies a craft, mm-hmm. and they may become a movie star, but a movie star doesn't necessarily have to be an actor. Yeah, right? I, I, they, I, they I sometimes disagree. overlap. But I, they, I disagree that they're completely different, but I yeah. do agree that there are some movie stars who are legitimately great actors. I think mm-hmm. Tom Hanks is legitimately a great actor, for example. Okay. Uh, maybe he wasn't always. Maybe he started off as more of a movie star, you know, kind of getting by on charm. But then you look at something like Captain Phillips and you're like, that guy can act. That guy's a great actor. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, it's some of it's mm-hmm. just luck. I mean, like, nowadays we're into this, again, we're into this phase where the classical definition of movie stars, we don't have a lot of them left. No, what we, what no, we do no. have more than anything else is, and, and you know, this is something that a lot of people said they would have preferred, I think. People went to movies based on characters. Mm. I'm interested in what Iron Man will do. I'm interested in what Batman will do. It doesn't quite matter who plays them, does it? it? Not yeah. quite so much. I mean, you could fuck it up, theoretically, but mm. as long as they're reasonably well cast, sure, whatever, let's see who this new Batman is. I'm, mm. I'm down. Like they're just they they get excited about the story. They get excited yeah, about the yeah. characters, and that's a good thing. Here's a here's a question, mm-hmm. and this is this is to like the Batman fans. Okay, whenever they cast a new Batman, mm-hmm. there's a, a big furor over the casting. Often, often, like a, not always. I, I'm not going to see Bat. I'm not going to see Ben Affleck. I like no, I like yeah. Ben Affleck. I'm interested in Battinson. Yeah, I don't want to see the Twilight guy. That's going to be a really crappy Batman, and it's like all really gritty, and everyone's like, oh, I like that Batman yeah. now. So my question is, who could they cast as Batman that would be legitimately, bad. undeniably bad? Well, again, it all depends on the take. Yeah, because there's so but, many but different. That's my Batman. point. It doesn't matter. I don't. I don't. <laughs> I, no, I disagree with that. Actually, the, the, the casting is just going to fit the material, whatever you're doing with that character. You assume it will, but mm. theoretically, it might not. Mm. So theoretically, you could cast someone who would be, for example, really good as a Batman who was funny. Okay. But if you put him in a darker storyline, maybe it wouldn't be so great. Mm. Uh, Adam West, for example, mm. can't really imagine doing the Dark Knight version with him. I think no, he's but just, he, he did the Adam West version. I'm just saying, like theoretically, genius. if you would cast someone like that for that version, yeah. would have been off. I think if you had said, okay, I want to do the Dark Knight Returns. Okay. We've alluded to it all the time. Let's just do an actual... Adaptation. It's a cliche because we've been mining that material for way too long. But for the sake of they, conversation, they even did uh, animated films of that one. They did. They with Peter Weller as uh, Batman. That was a good casting, by the way. But so my point is this. But my no point bad, is this. No bad casting. My, eh, hold on. My point is this. If you did a live action Dark Knight Returns, it's a story of like an aging Batman who comes out of retirement um, uh, to sort of stop Gotham from being this fascist hellscape. Um, but you cast, and he's age appropriate. Oh. Uh-huh. Pauly Shore. Okay. Not sure I could see him. Not I, mean, sure. I, I don't think he'd be a great Batman. Um, I've never seen Pauly Shore do dramatic work. Mm. He's, he's better known as a comedian. Yes. Um, I could see him as like maybe sort of like a laconic old dude. Yeah. Uh, maybe not so intense. I've never seen him play intense roles. Yeah, I've seen him play intense roles. He, here's what I would like. It's hard. To it's hard my point is this, and the point is he couldn't do it because like everyone said that about Michael Keaton. He's a comedian. He can't play yeah. Batman. My point is this, it's hard to picture. It's hard, it's you can hard imagine to, that going wrong. It's hard to picture, I suppose so. Yeah. Um, I like to think that Pauly Shore, I'm just saying he is a I like niche. to think that if, that if Pauly Shore is, is cast as Batman, that he'd probably do his homework and he'll probably <laughs> you know, dig into his craft a little bit. And, yeah. 
pull out like an, an interesting performance at the very least. Yeah. If, if, if on a practical level, yeah, that could work. I realize that. My <laughs> point is, is that theoretically, there's someone who could. Yeah. You it know, can always be done badly. It can be done. Okay, you know, it can always you, be done you know how you do it badly, Kevin Spacey. You know, just get somebody. <laughs> just get someone. Just somebody complains. Somebody yeah. is just completely hated. Yeah. Uh, that that's how you do it badly. Yeah. That that's the bad. We're gonna Batman reboot Batman, Batman with Kevin Spacey yeah. and James Woods yeah, and like the, oh the, no Mel Gibson like all Kevin these Sorbo <laughs> is the Joker. <laughs> all these like completely hated actors. Yeah. Just that, put them all in there. Would, just, just cast it with nothing but horrible people. Now that would test the fan base. I think. <laughs> Everyone be oh. like. I don't know. The sh- the, it would only be shocking if that, like, a movie like that came out and people were like, okay, well, let's talk about Batman. It's like, oh, no, no. no. Yeah. Oh, we've crossed the line. There's, there's, yeah, some people, like, get in the way of people's Batman. I don't know. Anyway, that is it for We've Got Mail. <laughs> Thank you, everybody, for writing in. Great questions. Uh, uh, glad to see everyone likes Star Trek. Uh, if, you, if you want to hear us talk about there, Star Trek even there more. Are, there are even other Star Trek writers. I'm sure yeah. there are. If you want to talk, listen, we, we released uh, our bonus episode. Uh, our episode about uh, Star Trek, The Next Generation, The Best of Both Worlds, Parts 1 and 2. Mm-hmm. That's on our main feed. We released that a couple of weeks ago as a little bonus because uh, we were having some trouble getting some new episodes together. We thought it would be a nice treat. Um, we have a ton of other Star Trek podcasts over at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. You can hear us talk about all the Star Trek. <laughs> we're going through all of the Star Trek. It's incredible. Mm-hmm. But we also talk about uh, every single movie ever nominated for the Academy Awards. Um, we do commentary tracks. We're about to do one for Pretty in Pink really soon. Uh, like, literally over the next, like, couple of days. Um, we do uh, trivia nights with our patrons. And please, come on down. We'd love to have you. And we're very grateful to all of our patrons, without whom the show couldn't exist. So, uh, And, of course, even at the $1 a month level, you get this show and all of our other uh, main shows ad-free. Sorry about the ads. Um so yeah, and if you want to write into this show in the future, feel free. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Whitney, what is our P.O. Box? Yeah, send us a physical letter to P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. Yeah, we're also on Twitter, at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. I also have a soap store with my partner. We create fancy handcrafted soaps for you. So all you got to do, there's a couple of different ways to get it. You can go join our Soap of the Month Club at patreon.com slash saltcatsoap, all one word. And you can get a soap every single month. You can vote on future soaps. We also have a podcast that's just me and my partner talking about soap crafting, talking about um, our various uh, uh, life events. We just did an episode where we talked about uh, going to the California Pen Show. <laughs> we uh, got to try out a whole bunch of really fancy pens and just geek out about that for a while. Um, that's all over at patreon.com slash saltcatsoap. Or if you don't want to join a Soap of the Month Club, but you do want some nice soaps or maybe some stickers that look like our cat Luca or maybe some signed books written by M. Lapis da Silva, you can head on over to our Ko-Fi store. That's uh, ko-fi.com slash saltcatsoap. Uh, and you can buy them there. And a lot of people have been asking. We do do international shipping through our Ko-Fi store exclusively. All right. So uh, you can get that there. So uh, Mother's Day is coming. Now is a good time. It is. Now is a good time to get to, to, to get that uh, get those nice soups. Anyway, uh, thank you everybody for listening. Thank you everybody who wrote in particular. And uh, that's that. Sincerely yours, Bibbs and Whitney. Thank you.